So, so, do you think you could be a stand-up comic? No. <laughs> you don't think? No, I don't think so. I think I, I think I have a great sense of humor situationally. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like a slow burn mm -hmm. thing, like getting to know somebody. But I don't think I could just stand up on a stage and just deliver like that and connect that quickly. I don't, I'm not a quick connector kind of person. Mm -hmm. I think stand-up comedy, you have to connect immediately, right? Yeah, I have a, I have a mildly funny personality. Like... <laughs> Like I am funny enough to deliver classroom content. Yeah. But um, the thing, so I took my husband to go see a comic, um, a stand-up comedian, a guy named Nate Bargatze, mm. who is so fun and funny. And we hadn't been to a lot of comedy clubs. And I watched like these first two comics before him. They mm -hmm. were like less, you know, well-known. Mm -hmm. And then he closed. And the first two, I was like, oh yeah, that was pretty funny. And then Nate Bargatze got up there. Yeah. And he was, it was like, experiencing a great symphony mm. because he was like starting with the, you know, the humor started slowly and then he like rode this crescendo of humor and we right. were like, our stomachs were hurting, <laughs> you know? So I don't oh, think I, I mean, could do that. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I think there was a previous episode maybe in our podcast where I was, we were talking about how hard it was to do stand-up comedy <laughs> right. and, I, and I shared one idea for a stand-up joke I had, the Al-Qaeda yeah. playground equipment joke. Uh -huh. I have another one now. Oh, really? It's, okay, yeah, yeah, But here's yeah. the thing, though. It's not, this is, it just goes to show you how hard it is. It's not funny, though. Mm. It's, this is more like kitchen humor. So here's, here's the joke. Is this I, a dad joke? Well, I haven't really practiced it yet. This is actually the first time I've verbalized okay, it. Okay, we're testing okay, it out here. So stand okay. up. So we're in there, like, <clears throat> picture the mic is like. It's dark. <clears throat> smells like beer. So, yeah, yeah. It's very stale. Everyone's watching. So I'm like. Hey, so, uh, yeah, so our oven, for example, what's up with my oven? Like, you know how in your oven you have like all these burners, different burners, and like they burn at different kinds of heat intensities. So like we've got one burner, which is like you turn it on high and it's like, you yeah, know, it just mm -hmm. is nice. And then most people's burners on their ovens are like, you turn them on, like you want to boil some water. It's like, and the, and the oven's like, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll, and, you know, the burner says to you, fine, let's do this. I'll, I'll do it. But then we've got this one burner and it happens to be the most successful one where it's like, when you turn it on, it's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> like it just goes crazy. This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm a professor, historian, author, and I have an abnormal fear of taking out the garbage. How convenient. <laughs> I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm an author, professor, biblical scholar, and I have a normal person fear of snakes and the dark and escalators. Ooh, today we're talking about Jordan Peele's revival of the classic horror series, The Twilight Zone. Is horror fundamentally about being trapped? Or is it just bombing on stage during your stand-up comedy routine? Join us. Join us. And like you can't boil anything low on it. I know. See, but it's not. I don't think that would work. See, did you? You <laughs> must have. Work. You must have grown up watching Seinfeld. Yes, that's a very. This that, is a Seinfeldian. That's a, that's in a Seinfeldian vein. Like definitely. the opening credits. You know, to me, the funniest person that I grew up watching because mm -hmm. my parents loved watching old television was Lucille Ball. Uh. And the funny thing, I mean, it's very. There's a lot of physical comedy, mm -hmm. and the funny thing, or the interesting thing about her, is that it's still funny. 
Like, yeah. you know, the iconic scene where she's working at a candy factory. Yeah. They're supposed to be doing like, oh, yeah, quality yeah, yeah, yeah. control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she starts stuffing candy and yeah. like her clothes and then that fills up in her mouth. And I mean, it's so funny. And <laughs> well, today, still to this yeah. day. Slapstick works a lot. Because like well. watch, watching people fall is always kind of fun. I thought of a Seinfeld <laughs> joke I'd read a long time ago in my shower this morning, literally this morning. Oh, really? It was like this joke about like, hey, those of you out there who like use a bar of soap until it's really thin and then you leave it there and then you use another bar of soap until it's uh-huh. really thin and then you try to do this Vulcan mind meld of the soaps together, <laughs> yeah. just throw them out. Like it's not, you're not getting, you're not getting anywhere with that. <laughs> I have cute. two soaps in my shower that are like that this morning. Were you like, like, ah, I'm trying Jerry to save them. Up. I'm trying to use them until they're like tissue paper thin. It's like, why? <laughs> why am I doing this? I think the kind of connection though that comedians had, like you said though, it's like, it's symphonic in its sophistication. Mm-hmm. It's, it's personal. It's it's just everything, which is you know why it's not a surprise that comedians bomb all the time because it's just so hard. Yeah, and you might be thinking, I thought that this was an episode about sci-fi or about, fantasy, uh, but actually, <laughs> it is. Yes, it we is. are talking about an episode of the Twilight Zone and all of its horror. Yes, um, called the Comedian. Now, this is the newest, latest version of the Twilight Zone, produced by Jordan Peele, who I'm a huge fan of from a number of his previous projects and so I was super excited that we that he was doing Twilight Zone because mm-hmm. he has just the amount of like humor and creepy and you know all the things that that you would need we're we're looking at an episode called The Comedian which stars um a man who is a, an aspiring comedian you mm-hmm. get the feeling that he's like mediocre um and played by Kumail Nanjiani. Yes, from the Big Sick and uh also I think he's in Silicon Valley. Maybe. And um yeah, he's just uh wonderful. Yep. And uh anyway, so it stars this man who's like a mediocre comedian who has an opportunity. He is given um he has an uh a an encounter. Yeah, like a mystical encounter with like a shadowy legendary comedian played mm-hmm. by Tracy Morgan. Yes. Who promises to like, it's kind of like a genie thing. Like, I'll give you what you want, but there's a price. And he doesn't quite know what the price is. Turns out, Camille Nanjani, the character, his his comedy, it's like, it's very principled comedy. Like, he's trying to make jokes about gun control in the Second he's Amendment. He's trying to be like Jon Stewart or not, not, Trevor Noah yeah, it, or something like that. It's genuinely painful, even in the show, even though you know it's fiction, to watch him bomb uh-huh, on the stage. Uh-huh. Um, so when he gets this chance to like, you know, and the Tracy Morgan character is like, would you give, a, you know, is this what you want more than anything, you know, to, yeah. to have? And he, he does. Turns out there's a little plot twist. Like he can get good jokes, but let's just say people have to die. That doesn't give away too much because yeah. you find it out really fast. So it's like, you, would you, you find that in the like first three minutes? Yeah. So would you, would you, would you basically sacrifice other people's existence in the world for your ability to do your dreams, you know? And it's sort of, and it has this kind of vibey Twilight Zone kind of creepiness about it. It's not like the kind of jump out around the corner, scare you kind of horror that yeah. I think you get in some of the other episodes in the series, which I've seen, but it's, it, it's like a slow burn kind of concept horror. Let's yeah. Say. Yeah. And so it's sort of a, it's a take on the legend of Faust, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the German legend um, that it it's, it's actually, I don't want to get too close to home, but it the the story of Faust is that there's this bored scholar, right? Who doesn't have <laughs> enough going on. Not me, not me, not me, <laughs> not, not me, not me. Neither of us. Doesn't have enough going on. And um, he is uh, calls on the devil and is offered a deal mm-hmm. by the devil mm-hmm. um, to know more and to be better, right? Um, and But at the end of the term, like for a period of time, but at the end of that time, Faust's soul will be will belong to the devil and he'll be enslaved forever. So it's a tough deal. 
It actually is. I mean, okay, so I w- when I thought about that, I was like, do I care enough about my job? I mean, like, do I feel this, like, eternal yearning mm-hmm. to be, like, the absolute best scholar? Right. I don't actually— I, I don't feel that <laughs> do yearning you? at all. No, I don't. I think I might have at one point. Yeah. But I definitely don't anymore. I've just had too many, like, leveling, moderating influences in my life for the good. Yeah, like children, not, a mortgage. Not, yeah, you know, it's just all kinds of things in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it raises, uh, you know, the issue of like how, you know, whether or not success is actually always something that's purchased with some kind of dark deal. Right. 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 Like, I mean, do you think that that's true, that, that great success in politics, in scholarship, in entertainment is always bought through some kind of secret dark deal, almost almost mystical, if not mystical, where you are really hurting or ruining something to get it? Well, I mean, I think that the Harvey Weinstein debacle of like the casting couch, right. blackmail, abuse of power mm-hmm. seems to support that narrative. I think there's like lots of the idea. Oh, if yeah. I said I said casting couch, I think everybody knows what that means, which is like getting a role in show business in exchange for sex. And so I think that it seems we seem to believe that that must be the case. Well, and I think, I mean, here's something too that I think is probably true, which is like the stories that have leaked out of Hollywood lately have just like barely started to come out. And there have been a lot of stories too that got like swept under the rug too. Stories that were just as bad as some of the ones that made big news. It's like, what's the difference between a story that really made big news and a story that didn't? But you know that it's only the proverbial tip of the iceberg of what oh, yeah, must yeah, yeah. actually happen. Well, I mean, I've thought, I so we belong to um, overlapping scholarly guilds, mm. Society of Biblical Literature for You and American Academy of Religion. For me, we have one big annual meeting mm-hmm. uh, where like, I don't know, 10 or 11,000 religion right. scholars all get together. That meeting is notorious for this type of thing happening. Right. right? And right. as much as everyone in the academy likes to think of themselves as like super woke and hashtag me too, like that movement has not made it to our guilt. Well, and it, 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 <laughs> would, it, would it be shocking to you in any way if suddenly all were revealed? If in the moment, as Jesus said, when everything secret is shouted from the rooftop, that you found like the wokest of people were the hugest offenders? Oh, that would not <laughs> like, that would not surprise me at all because I know that that's true. Like that's absolutely the way it is yeah. because there you see like a kind of rhetoric of cover up in one's life. Like I feel so guilty that I'm going to somehow cover up for it. Or there's a moral licensing that happens. Like I did this one good deed. It's kind of like I voted right, for right, Obama. Right. Now I'm <laughs> now a racist in my racist. Real yeah. life, you know, kind of thing. No, I think that's absolutely right. Which actually is a shout out to Jordan Peele's Get Out, interestingly enough. Um, but so I think though, and I, I just wonder, like show business is so high stakes, right? Like, so if you're doing, if you're lecturing, you can have a bad lecture. It's not that painful, right? Like yeah. students are like nodding off a little bit, you know, but if you bomb as a comedian, oh. that has to be excruciating. Oh, because, right? and you just know, you just know, you don't always know during a lecture whether it's working or not, which is one thing I hate about lecturing. Right, just right. My job is like, just the feedback loop is very tough. Because <laughs> sometimes students look like they hate you, but then they're like, that was really good. It changed I, my you, life. You can't tell, but it's like, that, and that's why comedy is the hardest genre because you know, like Certainly. a thoughtful artsy movie, do you know, like you watch the Twin Peaks new series, 18 hours of just like, strange dialogue is it working you don't really know you have to kind of like wait and see how it settles in your psyche maybe months maybe years afterward yeah comedy you know whether it's working immediately yeah are you laughing oh my god! and gosh. if you're not laughing you know and the feedback is there and it begins this this kind of spiral now the Camille Nunjani character 
mm-hmm. gets in a sense like trapped into this world, right? Yes. Because he can't get out of it. Now I went back last night thinking about this and I was watching, I was just scanning on YouTube some of the older Twilight Zone episodes because yes. this is a revival of an older show, of course. Yeah, for you um, young, young, young ones. For you young ones. Yeah. Um, um, uh, was it Rod Serling? Was that his name? Yeah. I think Rod Serling, the creator of the Twilight Zone. This is an older black and white kind of series. Um, I think it had a, about 150 episodes. Mm-hmm. And as I was watching them, I noticed a kind of a theme. I, I watched like YouTube videos, like the top 10 creepiest Twilight Zone episodes. Right. And I noticed that a lot of them had something in common, which actually the newer series actually has some of these too. Like I watched two of these episodes last night, The Comedian and also this other one called um, Terror at 30,000 Feet or something like that. I forget yeah. what it's called. Something like, no, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. Okay. And the thing that they seemed to have in common, I wonder if you could reflect on it, is in particularly in particular this notion of horror as the idea of being trapped. Mm-hmm. Like you're part of a narrative that you can't get out of, or there's some inexorable kind of deterministic thing going on that yeah. you can't shake or stop. I think of a classic Twilight Zone episode like The Dummy. So there's a ventriloquist who has a dummy, and the dummy starts like has a mind of its own, this classic old, like creepy doll horror kind of stuff, uh-huh. which, you know, you get Chucky, even Chucky's yeah, yeah, getting yeah, revived yeah. again now, oh, I think. Geez. Yeah. That, that, okay. what, what do we need in this time of, you know, <laughs> we need a new Chucky movie. Okay. Yeah, someone, some <laughs> studio executive's like, I know what we need. <laughs> we need Chucky. Yeah. Okay. So, but the dummy like takes control and it's like, you can see this. It's like, he wants to get away from the dummy. The ventriloquist mm-hmm. does. He mm-hmm. traps it in a, in a, I remember seeing that one when I was little, actually. He traps it in a chest, but of course you can't put it away. Are you talking about the episode, The Living Doll? I don't with, know. I think oh, it's okay. called. I think it's called the dummy. Oh, okay. Because this is a different episode. Because I wa- I rewatched. They did multiple episodes on this theme. Yes. Oh, the so, living doll. Yeah, yeah. Where the that dad is still so scary. Where the okay. dad tries to. You got like it's, an abusive, a verbally yes, abusive father, yes. and then his daughter gets like this she doll, gets this and doll she's doll like called Taki Tina. She says things too that are like very. She's like. First, they're really innocuous. She, yeah, and then she says, but the, even the even the horrifying things she says, they're very, it's kind of subtle in a way that's sort of very critical. She says, oh, I think that I will not forgive you. Oh, okay. She yes. says things like that. And like, yeah, so that show, I, I, you and I re- agreed that we would rewatch kind of the classic versions. And this is black and white. The production value is low. Low. But so it's amazing. It really is the power of, of the story, and mm. I really I like this idea of horror as this thing that you can't escape because the Takitina yes. episode, the living doll, um, people they try and get rid of the doll, and they just the doll just keeps coming yeah. back. It actually reminds me of a childhood story that I grew up with. I don't know if you grew up with this story because it's kind of like a girls tell it to each other at slumber parties mm. called um, the China Doll. Oh, so the legend of the China Doll is this now. If you have children listening to this, don't let them listen because they'll be freaking terrified, especially have if they have China dolls in their room. I'm scared already. And China dolls are creepy. They are inherently creepy. So the idea of the China doll is that this little girl gets a gift of a China doll. And I actually had one. It just had a China head because we were poor. The whole doll would be expensive. The whole but doll anyway. was like made of newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> Cotton. Anyway, but the China doll, this, this girl um, gets a China doll for a present. And then she like puts it up in her room and she wakes up in the morning. And, the, you know, the story, there are a lot of different ways to tell the story. Mm-hmm. But she wakes up in the morning and the China doll has blood on her hands. <laughs> and then she, um, she hears like, beware of the China doll. Right. Oh. And then she wakes up and like the family dog is dead. Right. Oh. And then people keep getting killed. Day by day. Yeah. And so yeah. you're like, is the China doll doing the killing? Yeah. That's and then the-, the, the it's the slumber party story because the end of the story, 
you have the person that goes, and I'm the China doll, right? Like uh, freaks everybody out. Right. But the thing about that is it's nightmarish, right? Like when you're yes. in a nightmare, you can't get out. Right, and and that's the the recurring nightmare theme. There was there was an old one too, where like a woman gets trapped on a non-existent ninth floor of a department store, and like these yes. mannequins are there. Oh, that's a good one. That but that feeling of getting trapped. I mean, is that what horror is at its core? I mean, maybe we can say yes. In the Twilight Zone mode, they seem to be trading on that. But when you think of like what is quintessentially horrific, is being trapped the quintessential horror theme? Well, I actually wonder about that because. Um, Horror movies, um, if you've ever seen this, uh, I, I actually enjoy certain aspects of the genre. I know you're not a huge horror fan. I'm just too afraid. Yeah, well, it's it's <laughs> very scary. There's a great horror film by Joss Whedon called The Cabin in the Woods, and it's mm. been called like a masterclass of horror mm-hmm. because they they there are a number of tropes that horror fans know to look for, yeah, right? Yeah. Like probably the most well-known one is the virgin girl, right, right? right? Like she's not supposed to have sex. Right. As soon as she does, she gets killed. You know, so there are these like traditional tropes. And so when you're watching a horror movie, it does feel like you cannot escape it because there's like a right. fate quality. I heard, so I have a friend uh, who will remain nameless who's yeah. single and and this friend uses dating apps and this friend, which all single people do now, I guess. I'm so glad I'm not in that world, oh, by the way. I've been married for be 17 years and I just look back really and I'm like, it didn't even exist when I started in this whole thing. Anyway, this friend told me that in fact, many dating apps, like popular ones, use a question like, do you like horror movies as one of the prime indicators of whether people are compatible. Oh, really? So typically it turns out that people are not compatible with each other, so they say, if one of them likes horror movies and the other one doesn't. Oh, are there like, it's like being a dog person or something? I guess it is. I don't, okay. So hmm. anyway. I'll have to think about that. Being trapped. Is this what horror is really about? Is it like you're in it? You're in a kind of like story that you can't get out of. Nightmare at 30,000 feet also is this. It also is, is about this. It's about a guy who's on an airplane. He's super nervous. He's maybe about to have a mental break. A lot of Twilight Zone episodes also trade on this idea that like, is the person insane or are they not? Which is a nice narrative technique because it allows you the audience then to have just that much doubt about whether it's actually yes, supernatural yes. Is, or whether is the protagonist a reliable narrator which yeah. I think gets at a very a deep fear that I think many of us could have I've definitely had this fear at different points in my life stories you know that I will not even share which is like am I going crazy oh right? yeah or, and you know am I in okay this is a horror form for the Christian like evangelical child yeah. which is you're home alone yeah and you didn't expect to be home alone. Maybe you wake up from a nap. Mm-hmm. And I see where this what, is going. <laughs> what's happened is actually that you're like 14 and your mom went out to go get milk or something like that. Right. But you, it's it's unusually quiet outside and you can hear birds chirping and stuff like that. But no you cars. don't see anyone. You don't see anyone. Where did they go? Have they been raptured? Have they been raptured? Yeah. And actually, that is horrifying when you think about it. It is horrifying. It's also theologically nonsensical, though, for the <laughs> for the evangelical imagination, because if there's a rapture, very few people should be raptured. And you should see some people just bungling along a little bit. Yeah, the place. yeah, like 90%, 99.9% of the population or something also like that. Also, a classic, a classic evangelical adolescent fear, though, namely that everyone else is righteous, but you're not. Exactly. And you're the one person harboring the deep, dark secrets that will keep you away from God, but other people don't have that. Yeah, or you were the person who was like listening to secular radio or right. using hairspray on your bangs when your mom told you not to. I'm mm. not saying that I was that person. Not saying it happened. Mm-hmm. Not saying it mm-hmm. didn't. Aquanet. <laughs> 
So <laughs> professional professional theology writing, biblical studies writing, has turned to horror as a theoretical lens or as, really an, as an approach. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, I mean, and, and it's, there's quite an industry of it is a lot of writing. I mean, granted, they're always very um, material explanations for these kinds of things. Like, oh, the field is just burgeoning. People are looking for any fresh angle they can get on scripture, any fresh angle on the tradition. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, why do you think this is? Why why has horror become, become a, a, a theoretical approach now to thinking about God, to thinking about theology? Well, I can think of a couple of reasons, and then I'd like to hear you mm. reflect on that. I mean, one of them has to do with Part of it's a tribute to the quality horror that is being produced. Mm. Like, a lot of stuff is on The Walking Dead, which you mm. and I have done an episode of that. Right. And, um, you know, lots of different— Like, so So on the one hand, there are just more shows in that genre that are being produced. But I think that there is something— um, The idea of, like, the fates or the idea of this providential arm and then, like, death and destruction Mm -hmm. that seems inherently present within the script all of scripture but especially books like revelation where there's like you know literally the the world is coming to an end Mm -hmm. and there seems to be like this is a foretold happening that has particular types of of beings Mm -hmm. that are like fulfilling their divine purpose what do you think yeah, well, picking, I mean, yeah, using Revelation to think about this idea of this inexorable future. I mean, it is kind of like a story of being trapped for the damned, for yeah. those who are on the outside. Or like you think of the last chapter of Isaiah, where you have this thing where like the righteous will, you know, be, you know, saved in some way, but those who are not will be thrown out in the streets and worms that will never be <laughs> right. killed in a fire that can never be quenched will burn them forever. Yeah. Um, I, I have this quote I wanted to read from Ron, uh, Rod Serling, the creator of the original oh, Twilight Zone. great. He consider just on this theme of like being trapped, and then I'll return to this. I weave it back in with this idea of like why theology of horror now, but he, um, Rod Serling um, considered the possibility of divine intervention Um, or at least of being ordained for his life's work. He said, quote, Why do I write? I don't know. I don't feel God dictated that I should write. You know, thunder rends the sky and a bony finger comes down from the clouds and says, you, write. You're the anointed. I never Mm. felt like that. I'm afraid that if I started to ponder who I am and what I am, I might not like what I find. So I'd rather go along with this sense of illusion that I'm a neutral beast going along through life, doing everything that's preordained. I'm out of control, so why fight it? Wow. I mean, so that right there, that psychological insight, I mean, this idea of like, there's almost like a horror of, yeah, of just like living this kind of neutral life and just acting like a robot, like an automaton through your life, which is not a very biblical vision. The the biblical vision seems predicated in a lot of ways on like choice, the idea that you would choose, but there's this haunting idea of of election, even back in the Old Testament, the idea that Israel is chosen and others are not and, and, you know, theologically, you know, we could go all day, sure. all day about like Calvinism and like w- the role that that plays, but. Well, and, you know, like, and how Calvinistic of a vision, you know, should you be? It's like, can you choose what pair of pants to wear in the morning? I don't know. <laughs> but but. I, I actually think that's a really interesting observation because what is scarier? The idea that you are doomed to fulfill a divine plan mm-hmm. or like not divine plan, like an, or like a evil, immortal plan, right. or 
the idea that, like, as the existentialists say, that you are doomed to be free, mm, right? Like, right, what? Right. which one of those things is more terrifying? The right. fact that this life that you're living is a culmination of all your choices mm-hmm. or the idea that, you know, there are a number of nature and nurture factors that have brought you here and this is the only version of the of your life that you would possibly live. Existential dread just came down on me like a cloud. <laughs> okay, so... Theology, I think there's plenty in scripture that's just flat out horrifying. Yeah. I mean, the amount of murders, the amount of blood, sure. the gore, the very idea of hell or a demonic realm, which is not really a big deal in the first three-fourths of the of the Christian Bible, namely yeah. the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, just suddenly seems to spring out of the ground fully formed. Of course, you have a, you have a formative period of early Judaism with the Enochic literature where this stuff comes up. But Interesting. Anyway, so you got this kind of like world of where horror plays a role. And I think seeing it played out on screen gives us insight into, yeah, like how just emotionally we can feel about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Or like I, you know, sometimes I talk to students about like a faith journey in terms of orientation, disorientation, new orientation. So the idea is like you start off kind of in a journey and you're super naive, like a road trip. And you're like, yeah, "Yeah, it's going to be fun. And then hour 18, you're like, this is terrible. Why did we do this? I should have gone home. But then hour 30. But then hour 30, you, fun you, you come around and it's fun again. And so it's like life, death, resurrection. There's a kind of a movement here of mm-hmm, the soul. And mm-hmm. so one thing that I think is fascinating for, for all of us to consider in faith traditions is like, how does our faith tradition do horror? How does it do disorientation? We mm-hmm. outsource a lot of our disorientation thinking to media and to other places. And I'm not saying that those are bad places yeah. to do that outsourcing. We need to kind of, we need to train ourselves emotionally to know how to react to things. And I think sometimes words on, on a scriptural page can get very dry. It's written in an ancient kind of idiom. And we can forget like what horror is or that there is horror in the universe just without these kind of prompts. I'll tell you what, uh, what, made, what I thought of when you were talking about that, which is, the this is almost like um, we're backing into an apology for the church calendar. Mm. So I grew up in a tradition that was like, you know, we talked about the crucifixion, but around Easter time, mm-hmm. people were like, we're just going to go straight to the resurrection. We're not going to spend you go from life to resurrection, life and like little tiny sad, yeah. and then like yeah. joy, you know. Right. And I think that if you follow like an an annual calendar, mm-hmm. like through um, the life and ministry of mm-hmm. Jesus, then you actually you are forced to have a very somber period totally. of like reveling in the death, right? Like mm-hmm. and thinking about your own mortality and thinking about what that means, like, you know, to consider the really horrifying um, line in the cre- in the Apostles' Creed, which is, and he descended into, into hell, descended you know? into hell. There like, that is. is scary. Yes. Before you get, so that you understand the meaning mm-hmm. of, I don't know what the anti-horror would be. Well, and there's, there's I think, yes, that's a great point. I think there's even more horror in the Creed, too. Um, I believe in Jesus Christ, God, God's only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born, born of the Virgin, of the Virgin Mary, Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. It just goes from being born to suffered. To suffering. Yeah. Like, suffered, and then, like, Pontius Pilate is in there, and yeah, now you're he thinking— he did a lot of, of other stuff in between. But, yeah, yeah, but it's like, it goes straight to suffering, and so you have these kind of moments here. That's a great point. And so I think that there's, yeah, for people out there, and, and this would be true, I think, for other faith traditions, mutatis mutandis, um, that in fact you would find these narratives of disorientation and suffering that are in mm-hmm. fact central to the to the traditions in a way or at least central enough that they make the kind of resurrection moment whatever that is or the beauty or the grandeur of heaven or you know yeah. th- there are all kinds of other things that make that meaningful well i'll tell you it's funny so my son was 
was um, he needed to be hospitalized. My my older son needed to be hospitalized when he was a baby. Mm. And um, it was a very, it was just textbook traumatizing uh, yeah. circumstance. But one of the things that came out of that is somebody was asking my husband, like, how did that feel? Like, mm. what what was going through your mind? And the only word he's ever been able to come up with, and I agree with it, is horror. Hmm. It's like, it's not even sadness or anger or anything. It's like, it is that moment of disorientation. Like, yes. this is the worst. Like, it yes. is the worst and I can't, there's nothing I can do about it, oh. you know, while you're in that. But I will say this about that horrifying moment is that now when my son runs to me and puts his arms around me, mm-hmm. I will say that that joy is heightened having yes. experienced that horror. Totally, totally. It's it's like having I mean it almost it almost sounds like a kind of stoic theodicy. Um the stoics were famous for saying, you know, like, look, yeah, bad things happen in life. Um but in fact, you know, you need a little dark in the painting. You need mm-hmm. when you have actors on a stage, contrast. you want some ugly actors and some actors who are cruel so that the the heroic actors rise even more. Um and all this other stuff that happens like uh, I think Seneca says, um y- you know, You've lived life without any suffering. You have no antagonist in your life. Mm-hmm, you need mm-hmm. an antagonist in your life. And horror, I think, definitely gives us those very visceral antagonistic characters, whether they're monsters or in the kind of Twilight Zone trap narrative we've been talking about, almost like a situation that you're in is that antagonist. Um, and for the Camille Nanjani character, he finds a way actually out of it, which not every character does in these types of yeah, narratives. Yeah, and we don't want to spoil it no, for no, no, you. No, 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 no. But it is— It's a horrifying it, way it out, is, too. But. It's a horrifying way out. It seems like the inevitable way out, right? Right. So I have to ask you, we're talking about that. Like, from the very beginning, we were talking about the Faustian bargain. Oh, yeah. What would you do? Yeah, what would you do if you were offered— I, I don't know, the thing that you would want most in the world— <laughs> But you could enjoy it for like, let's say a thousand years. Oh, man. But there was a time limit. A catch. Mm-hmm. Would you do it? You know what's crazy about that? So I saw, Don't. I'll, I'll come back to answering this. Don't mm-hmm. worry. Just a roundabout way. Okay? okay. So the other night we saw the new, the remake, the live action remake of Aladdin okay. with my wife and my mm-hmm. two daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of fun to watch. Kind of a cotton candy sort of movie where it's like, while you're watching it, you're like, yee. And then afterward, it's like, did that happen? What was that? <laughs> Um, and I, I, I was weeding in our backyard uh-huh. the day after on my hands and knees, weeding this huge weedy patch. And I got to just like, my mind is just drifting something that with our phones, we don't do enough these days. Just letting the mind wander. Fact, fact, fact. And, mm-hmm. But I was doing that and I was thinking, I, this is so infantile, but I was like, what if, what if I had a genie? What would I literally wish for? Three wishes. Yes. And do you know? It got really complicated in my mind. I couldn't think of anything. You know why? Because I, I was overthinking it and it gets really weird. For example, what if you said, okay, I wish for $100 million. Let's just say that. Okay, where are you going to tell people you got it from? From a genie? And then people would resent you. You know. Well, and then like the IRS. Yeah, there are tax implications mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. I would want it. Here's the thing, and this maybe says more about me than anything. I would want it to seem natural. Like I wouldn't want it. Like, for example, in the episode of The Twilight Zone that we're talking about, his his humor skills once he does the bargain it seems mm-hmm. it seems natural you mm-hmm. know people sometimes remark like yeah you used to not be funny now you are but then a lady's like later she's like oh, i guess you were always kind of funny mm-hmm. so it's like it seems i would want it to really be me so the very idea of it i would know it was a lie and it just kind of like burned in my mind and i kind of lost it and i i lost the thread and i wasn't even able to think of any wishes even wishes for like you know, people I know that are sick to be better because it's like, well, but would that actually be better? Maybe I'd be altering something in the world that is supposed to be the way that it is. And I got totally paralyzed. You know, one of the things that I thought 
about when I was thinking, would I make this type of bargain, is that I would hope that I would be wise enough to make a mundane request that had like transcendent value. Mm. So I was thinking about, you know, the famous Bible story of of Solomon, you mm-hmm. know, like that he's offered, God offers him anything and he says, please give me wisdom, right? So, right. and that is obviously the best, the best response in that circumstance. But if I were to have another one, what I thought of was this old fairy tale that I remember as a child. And it, there are these three princesses and each of them, the, they tell their father, I love you more than whatever. And the first two princesses have like these grandiose things. I love you more than this kingdom and blah, blah, blah. And the youngest princess says, I love you more than, I think it's like salt or something. <laughs> With the idea that salt actually has like huge value. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Maybe it's bread and water or whatever. But I would hope that I would have the wisdom to ask for the right thing. Or even I would hope that I would just be like, get behind me, Satan. I know you're the devil. Yeah. And then <laughs> I'm Pentecostal like that. And, and if you fall for it, you've got nothing but horror. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. We love all our weirdos, near and far. For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website, weirdreligion.com. And join our social media conversations about religion and pop culture on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Weird Religion. And we're YouTubing now, so find us on YouTube. YouTube us. No. <laughs> These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios, engineered by Luke DiLorenzo and executive produced by Troy Wellstad. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our album artwork by John Williams. A special shout out to Portland Seminary for sponsoring the season and to trigger the studio dog. When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye. <laughs>